John chapter 6, verse number 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? For this he said to prove him. For he knew himself, he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto Jesus, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the, the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. And when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Mm. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would reveal this scripture to us and a lesson or two that might be applicable to the children of God. Speak to our hearts, and may the Savior be properly lifted up before these 10,000 eyes. We ask in his name. Amen. You may be seated. How many miracles did Jesus do? I know I could word the question differently and the answer would be different. How many miracles did Jesus perform which are, which are recorded in all four Gospels? This one. If I said, how many miracles are there in the New Testament which are recorded in all four Gospels, it would have been Christ's resurrection as well. But uh, that Jesus performed. There's only one that's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. For that reason, it may be one of the most commonly preached of Jesus' miracles. I didn't check my records to find out how many times I have preached from this theme because it would involve going to the four different uh, scriptures and whatnot, and I just didn't want to do that. Uh, but tonight, I want to look at the event from a different perspective, with different eyes. My primary focus is not the miracle in itself, and I'm not trying to preach the gospel. The Lord Jesus took this miracle and later did preach the gospel, but that's not my purpose this evening. Tonight, I'd like to show you a couple of things. Number one, how to probe the scripture. 
So often we read the scripture because we have four chapters we need to read every day to get through the Bible, etc., etc. We have our plan, we follow that, and we don't, we don't really dig very deeply. What we need to do from time to time is go slowly and say, and ask ourselves, what does this mean? What does this say? And we're going to do that this evening. Our lesson may be a little longer than we usually have on Wednesday evening, but hopefully not too long. My second purpose is to highlight the lessons that Christ had for his disciples. That is, a lesson for you and for me. I plan to ask a few questions, at least planting those questions in your hearts, and then I will offer you my answer to those questions. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Did you know that the Sea of Galilee has three names? What is the other name? I'll let you answer. Salt Sea. Genesaret. What? What? No, Salt Sea is the Dead Sea. Oh, yes. Okay. Sea of Galilee, uh, Tiberias, Genesaret. We find that in Luke chapter 5 and verse number 1. More important than the lake itself, what precipitated this trip to the other side? Why did they go over there? We could look immediately to the preceding chapter after these things. We could go back to chapter 5, but it would only give us part of the picture I won't be taking you to the other three Gospels. You're going to have to trust me that I'm doing it properly, but I also know that you have access to double-check the things that I am saying, so I'm, I will be honest with you, but we just don't have time to go back and forth. Matthew and Mark tell us that just prior to the feeding of the 5,000 was the death of John the Baptist. The death of John the Baptist. There was blood in the water, so to speak. And the leaders in the land, both the, uh, the, the political leaders and the spiritual leaders, wanted more of that blood. They wanted the head of Christ Jesus. So that's something to keep in mind. Also, Luke tells us that Jesus disciples had just returned from successfully presenting or representing the Lord Jesus. They had departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And the apostles, when they returned, told Jesus all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city of Bethsaida, and then we have eventually the feeding of the 5,000. That's in Luke's account. So the Lord took the 12 aside for the purpose of refreshing and uh, rejuvenating them. This was toward the end of Jesus' popularity period when everything was going fine with the common people, but the Sanhedrin's getting more upset and uh, things are starting to deteriorate in that way. And even the common people are soon going to turn against Christ. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A, gr a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. How large is this great multitude? Great multitudes are large. 
We are told that there are 5,000 here. There's probably more like 6,000 when you start adding the women and children that we are told were also there. And why was this great multitude following Christ? Well, we're told the miracles. I'm sure that many in the crowd had heard rumors about the few resurrections that had come from the hand of the Lord. But there weren't many of those, and there isn't any evidence that the disciples ever raised the dead. At least I don't think so. So the miracles that they're referring to, and we have a reference to it here, the miracles of the diseased being healed, the infirm being repaired. Perhaps there were hundreds of sick and infirmed who had been healed not only by Christ, but also by the disciples under the authority of the Lord Jesus. We're told earlier that they went everywhere healing people. So the question arises, how many of those lepers, or former lepers, how many of those former <coughs> crippled people are now believers on Christ, saved by the grace of God, new with spiritual life. We have no idea. None. I think it's safe to say that many of the multitude were only interested in the physical blessings that Christ provided. We see that elsewhere, although it's not brought up right here. Much of the revival that was going on at that time had no eternal value. It's all temporary. You could compare it to the successes of the, the megachurches in, uh, in America today. Statistics tell us that church attendance is dropping every year, while some of these monstrous churches are growing every year. But nevertheless, the overall effect in America is a decline of spirituality. Our our country is spiritually uh, in shambles, despite the revival that some churches are seeing. There's revival and then there's revival. Almost all of the people following Christ as he crossed that lake were doing so from the shore. They were walking along the edge and could see out there across the lake. They were following Christ in that way. Was Jesus walking on the water while crossing the Sea of Galilee? Not on this occasion. He was not. He was in a boat. He was sailing across. Someone standing on the water would have uh, stuck out like a sore thumb, you might say, and people walking along the edge or the cliffs uh, along the lake would, would see that one guy walking across the water and they'd be able to recognize, uh, we need to follow him, but that wasn't going on. So how are the people able to track the disciples' boat? It was probably one of Zebedee's boats, but I don't know that for sure. Was it the only craft on the lake? I don't know, maybe. Did it have some sort of emblem on it that identified it as the boat of Christ? Was there a Christian flag fl uh, 
unfurled at the uh, uh, helm of the, the ship? I doubt it. Nothing like that. So how did they know? How did the people know that this was Christ's boat? I don't have an answer to that, but I do have an application. The world is watching, and many of the lost vaguely know that this is one of the boats of the disciples. You may not be able to cross the street without your neighbors knowing that you represent the Lord Jesus. They have your eye, their eye on you. They may not understand. Uh, they may not want what you have, but some of them actually do. They're watching. They may watch it, be watching for a long time. Be careful. Be godly. Be sin-free. Be a good ambassador for Christ. They've got their eye on your boat carrying Christ Jesus. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. What was the Lord's purpose in this little journey? What was he doing there with his disciples? It's all right to use your imagination. I, I like my imagination. I use it. But it's very important to keep it within the confines of what we find in the scripture. Don't let it run too far away. Are you picturing Jesus listening to his men recounting the victories that they had in their recent ministries? That fits within the scripture. That could be what he was doing. And did he ever gather his disciples around him for any length of time without teaching them something? Confirming the saints, to use some language we heard last week? I think he did that often. Did Jesus spend any of that time praying with his brethren. If he did, it perhaps helps to explain verse number five that we'll get to here in just a minute. Which would have been the greater blessing to the disciples? To listen to Christ teach another lesson or to hear him in fellowship with his heavenly father? And the Passover, a feast of the Jews was nigh why does John bring this up? I read somewhere that one of the characteristics of John is to use these uh, points in time, tying things together. Uh, I think it's Luke who, or is it Mark? One of them likes to say straightway or immediately. Well, each of them have their little idiosyncrasies. Some say that John liked to use these little notes in time. It could be to tell us that this was Jesus' third Passover as, as a minister, which means at the next Passover, he will die. Could be. It could be telling us that simply this was the spring, springtime, and that explains why there was ample grass for everyone to sit on and be comfortable, perhaps. But it also could point out something somewhat sinister. All the adult males of Israel were supposed to be in Jerusalem at this time. It's the Passover. But the God who ordained that rule broke it. That might really bother some people. But since God cannot sin, 
I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Amen. And yet I will ask, why didn't Jesus go to the city this week? The Passover is coming up in a few days. Isn't the answer, Jesus' earthly work wasn't finished? And the Lord's timing had not been complete as yet, completed? Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, to preserve God's will, the Lord chose not to put himself or his disciples in unnecessary danger. It wasn't that he was afraid of Herod or the Romans or the Sanhedrin, and it wasn't that they could do anything against him. On several occasions, they, they uh, attempted to push him off a cliff or throw stones at him, and he just walked through as, nothing, as if nothing was going on. Here, Christ simply chose not to expose himself to the trouble that was brewing down there in uh, Judah and Jerusalem. Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him. How could 5,000 people come up the hill and the omniscient Son of God not know or at least not show them any interest until a few minutes passed? It must have been deliberate with Jesus completely focused on his disciples and their needs. He may have been listening to their excited reports or he may have been teaching some really important Christian doctrine that they lost did not necessarily need to hear right now. So he just didn't pay them any attention. Or the Lord might have been in prayer and his spirit was so occupied with things in heaven that he didn't recognize anything that was going on uh, before him in the earth. And he lifted up his eyes and there are 5,000 people there. I don't have an answer. We don't always have to have answers. But the questions can help us, can motivate us, can move us. I confess that I don't understand the dynamics that work within the Trinity. If you do, please let me know. What made the infinite Son of God lay aside some of his uh, prerogatives? I know that he did, but that's about it. When he saw the people, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now we come to the point of tonight's lesson. Why wasn't this general question posed to the entire group of disciples? Why did Jesus point to Philip and say, Whence will we get uh, bread for all these people? It certainly would have been appropriate to ask the whole group. But doesn't this remind us that even though we are a congregation, even though we are an ecclesia of the Lord, when the Word of God is preached, or when the Holy Spirit works, it is usually individually. When Brother Hogue is teaching, he's teaching me. Oh, and he's teaching you. He's teaching all of us, but the practical point of it is I need to learn this. 
I need to make some changes. Philip, what do you think about this? What is your answer to this? The Lord could have asked any of the twelve, and he could ask the same thing of us. God wants your answer to this question. Lay aside what you think the pastor might say in regard to the question. What about you? How do you answer this question? How do you respond to the Lord? And what exactly was the question? Where shall we find enough bread that all these people may eat? We were told that this was, are told elsewhere, that this is an area that belonged to the city of Bethsaida. We're also told elsewhere that Philip is from Bethsaida. I must assume that the nearest community was Bethsaida. Philip, is there any place in your hometown where we could get enough food for 5,000 people? Do you know of anybody? Do you have a store there that you might recommend? The Lord has laid out ecclesiastical and evangelistic responsibilities before us as a church made up of individuals. Christian, where shall we find the answer to the needs of these thousands of lost people? Don't skip over the question. It's your question. Philip, David, Samuel, Paul, ask yourself the question. From where does the supply come? That is the question. Let's test the revival waters. Do we really want revival? Philip, what do you say? Where do we go from here? That was the question. But Philip didn't answer the question. And he said, and this he said to prove him, for he knew himself what he himself knew what he would do. We need to realize that the Lord is constantly quizzing and testing us, proving us. Of course he knows, but he wants us to know what our value to him might be or our potential value to him might be. Sometimes he puts problems before us, asking, now, where will you turn for a solution to this problem? Are you going to go to the government? Are you going to go to your spouse? Are you going to go to whatever? Are you going to go to me? Sometimes he tests and proves us to find out whether we'll step forward in faith or step backward in sin. How are you going to meet this challenge? Are you going to trust the Lord? Or are you going to cower in the flesh? Whatever our answer might be, the Lord knows what he is going to do. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that everyone may take a little. It's generally said, I guess it's accurate, I've read it I don't know how many times, 100 times, that a penny was what the average laborer got in that day. Penny for a day's wages. So a penny would buy several meals. It would have to cover other expenses beside food. 
in reading the eyes of uh, people claiming to be experts, 200 penny worth could buy anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 meals, these experts tell me. As Philip looked at the crowd, he chose not to answer the Lord's question, where shall we get the bread? He posed one of his own, just like us. We answer the Lord's questions with our own questions, usually questions that deal with our unbelief, our lack of faith. Usually we pose an alternative in order to protect our fragile ego. I don't have an answer to that. Hey, Lord, do you have an answer to my question? Philip replied, it's not about where we could find enough food, Lord. It's about how we could pay for it. There's the real question. Philip, you don't know what the real question is. Remember, this is not a miracle that the disciples have seen before. There is the feeding of the 4,000, but in the other Gospels, that comes a chapter or two after the feeding of the 5,000. This is the first time that this sort of thing has taken place. So this is new territory. But isn't this what faith is all about? The substance of things hoped for, but which has not yet been seen? Yes. What are you going to do, Philip? Here's our lesson. We can trust the Lord for things we've never seen, or we might not. Can we trust the Lord for things we have only imagined or prayed about, considered off there in the distance? Can we trust the Lord to spectacularly glorify himself in this dozen little group of, this one group of a dozen disciples? Do we believe that the Savior can redeem 5,000 souls at once? Oh no, he could have done that once. He did that in the Bible days, but he couldn't do that now. What's wrong with your faith? <laughs> Philip? Do you have an answer for this? We, don't we often say, Lord, we don't have the resources. We don't have the finances. We don't have the personnel that you need to glorify yourself. We're nothing. We're nobody. Philip, do you have an answer? With Philip stuttering and stammering, uh, his friend Andrew came to his rescue. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? I have more questions than I have answers. I've already shared that with you. But sometimes it's good. It's, it makes us search a little, think a little, trust a little perhaps. Was this boy the only person there with any food at all? How old was this kid? Did he sneak out of the house without his mom knowing it? Did he steal some of the lunch and put it in his sack and take it off to the hill where he hoped to meet Jesus? I don't know. Was he the one with faith enough to approach Andrew? Look, I've got some fish here, some bread. Or was it Andrew who spotted, oh, there's a kid with some food over there. Who came to who? How did that develop? I don't know. 
Well, let's say it's the boy. And if, we, if that's true, then notice the childlike faith. I have five little loaves of bread. I have five little flatbreads here. Uh, I'll give them to the Savior if he wants. A couple of dried fish. Look at the faith. What could the Lord do with that? Did Andrew at first believe, here is a, a solution, and then his mind kicked in and, and oh, but what's, no, oh, I'm, I apologize for even bringing it up, Lord, but is that the sort of thing it was? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Notice, first of all, that the Lord didn't reprove anyone for their sinful lack of faith. He could have. They deserved it. I'm not saying that he approves of our spiritual destitution, but he knows our every weakness. And he knows that they will be thoroughly reproved once everybody is satisfied with the, the miracle. Elsewhere, we're told that there were women and children beyond the 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise the fishes, as much as they would. This is getting off track, but when I sit down to eat, I thank the Lord for his provision. Usually I thank the Lord for other things before we get around to eating. But when I ask someone else to do the same, Darren's at my house or something like this. I ask him to ask the blessing on the food. <clears throat> blessing, thanks. Why do I mix things up like that? Well, subconsciously, we have it right here. Here in John, the Lord gave thanks for the food. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus took the food and blessed it. Ask the blessing, give thanksgiving. We have the same thing going on here in this miracle. It might probably be said, properly be said that Jesus blessed the Father for what was going to happen. Also it could be said that he blessed the bread and the fish so that they might be multiplied. He also expressed his gratitude. Did the Lord thank the little boy? Probably. He thanked the father as well. One of the great needs of the day, of any day, are little people who are willing to sacrifice of themselves for the Lord. What was going through this boy's mind? Was he expecting a miracle? Was he expecting to be fed if he gave it away? Not only did he give his meal away, he gave somewhat of himself. Without this food, here's a 12-year-old boy. 12-year-old boys get hungry in a hurry. He's, he's going to be hurting in a little while without any food, especially if he's going to go home the next day or even that night. So he gave of himself. 
But in the sacrificing and the multiplying of his gift, he was blessed as anyone else there that day. He probably went home thrilled to be of service to God. I wonder what his parents thought when he told them what had happened and what he did. I can only imagine the actual mechanics involved in all of this. None of the other accounts help us very much. Five loaves don't divide up very well into 12 baskets from the disciples. Why not six loaves? Make it easy. It wasn't. Uh, then at what moment were the ingredients multiplied? They were certainly multiplied when, or were they? When the Lord put them in the disciples' hands? When they left Jesus' hands sometime in the distribution? As each recipient received his gift, did the disciple look back into his basket and find, hey, there's just as many fish and just as much bread as there was before I gave this guy his, his portion? Was it like the Old Testament uh, barrel of oil and barrel of meal sort of thing? I don't know how the Lord did it. We're not given that information. How long did it take for a dozen men to pass around food for five, six, seven thousand people? Did they draft others to help them? And if so, where did the miracle go from there? I'm not casting doubt on the word. I'm casting doubt on my ability to understand what was going on. It, 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 it took place. I'm just curious. It doesn't really matter. When they were filled, he said unto the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Was there any fish left over? doesn't say that there was. I think it can be safely said that the Lord hates waste. There are proverbs that deal with this. But I have to wonder here, why were there any leftovers in the first place? The Lord is an excellent mathematician. It could have been that there was exactly enough food for everyone to be full without any leftovers at all. But there were 12 baskets full, apparently. Since there were 12 baskets and 12 disciples, I would conclude that the leftovers were for the disciples. They must have had some sort of wicker purse-like thing that they all, which was common, I suppose. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. This time it is not the disciples who are saying, this is the prophet. This, these are the people who are being fed. And as I've showed you not too, recent, too long ago, this reference to that prophet is a reference to the Messiah. This must be the Messiah. This is the Messiah. But what kind of Messiah were the people of Israel at this point in time seeking? Were they looking for a savior from sin? Or were they looking for a king who could feed them? The question remains the same today. Do we really want 
the Lord Jesus Christ, or are we just interested in Jesus? I'll conclude with just a couple more questions, putting this into the context of our world and our responsibilities. What was the job of the disciples? Wasn't it simply to obey the Lord and pass out the food, which you might say was the grace of God in this particular case? Did they yearn to see those thousands immediately leave their religious idolatries to follow Christ as the twelve had done? Didn't they want their little church to grow? Oh, even by two or three hundred, wouldn't that be marvelous? Of course they wanted their Savior to be glorified. But didn't they also want some real, tangible, practical results? Don't we? Or, or do we? Mm. We want, I want, revival. What is that? It is the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. With Him doing whatever He chooses oh. to do. And if not one of these five, six thousand follow Christ, what is that to Andrew or Peter or John? Shouldn't bother them. The Lord was glorified that day. And people were saying, this is the prophet. This is the Messiah. We might look at all of this as the Lord testing the faith of his disciples. Do we really want revival? Can we expect the miraculous? Do we expect the miraculous? Doesn't the Lord say, Come on, Philip. Trust me. If this little boy can do it, can't you? Can't we?